Welcome to GE Vital Voices, where we help move the conversation and solutions forward. GE Healthcare is focused on precision health. Doctors, nurses and clinicians are often under-resourced and overburdened. And COVID-19 has brought this front and center. Solving the industry's productivity challenges by improving access, enabling more precise patient diagnosis and treatment, shortening hospital stays and wait times, and lowering overall costs is more pressing now than ever. GE Healthcare is about delivering on the future of healthcare by enabling precision health, integrated, efficient, and highly personalized care. Hello and welcome again to another episode of GE Vital Voices. My name is Elena Schutz and I'm a journalist who frequently works in the healthcare sector. It's so lovely that you're joining me again for the podcast that looks at the issues really affecting healthcare workers across the system and anybody who's interested in public healthcare, both in South Africa and beyond. Let's have a conversation about everything that is vital to you. So you will know that we have spoken on the show multiple times about COVID-19 and how it affects healthcare workers in Africa. And the truth is that effect didn't disappear when the numbers dropped and hospitals and clinics went back to some kind of normal. Long COVID cases still make their way into our wards and the long-term marks of the pandemic are hard to ignore. And the effect I want to talk about specifically today is how COVID affected cardiovascular conditions. Of course, we associate the virus most frequently with the lungs, but its influence on the heart is quite a harsh one. And so to discuss this, I have an amazing expert with me today. Professor Ntobeko Ntusi is a cardiologist and the chair and head of medicine at the University of Cape Town and Gotteskew Hospital. Here he is the group lead for the Cape Heart Institute's Cardiac Imaging and Inflammation Research Group. He's also the editor-in-chief of the South African Heart Journal and a collaborating investigator at the Wellcome Trust Center for Infectious Diseases Research in Africa. Quite the CV there, Prof. Thank you so much for being with us. An absolute pleasure to join you, Elena. Firstly, can you set the scene for us? What effects does COVID-19 have on the cardiovascular system? What do we know? COVID-19 affects the cardiovascular system in a myriad ways. Myocardial injury, which is a fancy way of saying a release of uh, troponin enzyme from the myocardium, is reported in up to a third of hospitalized patients with COVID-19. And the clinical manifestations of COVID-19 in the cardiovascular system includes myocarditis, which in the early days of the pandemic was overcalled, and we know that the incidence is only about 2 to 5%, pericarditis or inflammation of the membranes around the heart. Arrhythmias uh, or conduction disturbances are quite common as well as uh, new-onset hypertension, elevated blood pressure, new-onset heart failure, as well as uh, acute cardiomyopathy are all reported uh, as uh, important cardiovascular manifestations of COVID-19. 
In addition, Takotsubo or stress-induced cardiomyopathy, myocardial infarction or heart attack, as well as pulmonary embolism and stroke are all common manifestations of COVID-19 in the cardiovascular system. So I guess one can summarize our cardiovascular involvement from COVID-19 that on the one hand, COVID-19 drives susceptibility to development of uh, cardiovascular disease. And where cardiovascular disease does occur, COVID-19 drives severity of disease phenotypes. And so it's useful to think of cardiovascular disease in relation to COVID-19 uh, in four ways. Uh, firstly, the impact of myocardial injury, which is associated with greater likelihood of ICU admission and greater likelihood of increased mortality. And this is associated with elevated D-dimers, lower lymphocyte count, as well as uh, higher pro-inflammatory cytokines, which are mechanistic drivers of uh, these outcomes. The second is the impact of COVID-19 on chronic myocardial injury. So those with prior COVID-19 in the long term will have higher subsequent dyslipidemia, accelerated atherosclerosis and endothelial dysfunction, and higher risk of atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease. And similar observations were made with the original SARS virus and MERS-CoV, both of which drive these complications. The third important way to think about uh, COVID-19 and the cardiovascular system is that SARS-CoV-2 in those with pre-existing cardiovascular disease is associated with higher morbidity, greater disease severity, greater likelihood of ICU admission, and greater rates of mortality, particularly in those who are elderly, who are diabetic, or who are hypertensive, and those who've had a prior history of heart failure. One may think of the impact of COVID-19 on new onset cardiovascular disease. So it drives new onset hypertension, new onset heart failure, new onset arrhythmias, new onset myopericarditis, and new onset stroke. And finally, you may ask yourself, why is it that the risk of cardiovascular disease is increased by COVID-19? And there are a number of important mechanistic explanations, and I'll just uh, highlight um, some of the more important ones. We know that the ACE2 receptor, which is the critical mediator in enabling SARS-CoV-2 to enter the cells, is quite predominant in cardiac cells, both in the vasculature, but also in the myocardium. And so this is an important reason why the heart is a common source of uh, involvement in those with COVID-19. But COVID-19 is also associated with de novo arteriothrombosis, both within the vasculature, but also inside the heart. And so thromboembolic complications are a key driver of many of these cardiovascular complications that I've mentioned. In addition, systemic and specifically cardiovascular inflammation is an important uh, mechanism. And uh, those who do basic science studies as well as imaging studies 
uh, including our own group, have reported higher incidence of micro-infarcts, both within the heart and in the brain in those uh, with COVID-19. So it's clear that the link is not only serious, but really multifaceted. And so it's no surprise that your research group did quite a few different studies throughout the pandemic period. Do you want to tell us a little bit about what you found? Uh, indeed. So uh, we, we were very fortunate in that um, we are very well set up for basic science studies, clinical studies, clinical trials, as well as our population health studies. And when the pandemic arrived, um, we obviously were not able to continue our elective research. And so we decided to pivot uh, our platforms to try and address important questions that were unanswered in relation to COVID-19. And uh, we were lucky to lead a pioneering scholarship that um, influenced our evolving understanding of the disease. And so some of the observations uh, that we're able to make, which have been confirmed by other groups around the world, were firstly that evidence of myocardial injury in individuals uh, with COVID-19 is common and that based on um, cardiovascular magnetic resonance studies, COVID-19-associated myocarditis is actually rare. We found um, new onset hypertension and new onset heart failure to occur very commonly in hospitalized patients. We also studied uh, long COVID, in fact, had a paper published uh, last week reporting uh, that those with long COVID have associated uh, cardiovascular symptoms. But the good news is that these improve over time. And importantly, vaccination also reduces the propensity to develop both long COVID and the cardiovascular features uh, associated with long COVID we have been able to describe that structural changes both in the brain and in the heart, including uh, elevations in native T1, uh, which is a marker of both myocardial fibrosis and myocardial inflammation, as well as microinfarcts, uh, persist long after individuals have recovered from COVID-19, but these are not uniformly associated um, with impairment uh, in cardiac function. We've also conducted quite a number of immunological studies where we've been able to demonstrate the durability of antibody responses, the durability of T-cell responses to COVID-19, immunophenotypes of T-cells and their expression, as well as reporting excellent immune memory in those who have had uh, prior COVID-19. And we're able to study the mechanisms of breakthrough infections in people who got uh, reinfected in subsequent waves um, by demonstrating that um, both in um, live uh, neutralization studies, as well as uh, pseudovirus neutralization studies. There is reduction in um, 
antibody neutralization as well as antibody dependent uh, cellular cytotoxicity and we were also able to show that um, one of the key drivers of likelihood of reinfection is the extent of epitope coverage uh, of both IgG and IgA uh, to SARS-CoV-2 and work led uh, by uh, Marianne Davis as well as Andrew Bull uh, from Cape Town showed in the early days that um, COVID-19 was associated with a high rate of uh, mortality in those who were co-infected either with TB or with uh, HIV. And this is work that we've uh, recently replicated uh, in a separate study called Hiatus that was led by Robert Wilkinson. Again, uh, being able to demonstrate clinically and uh, immunologically that uh, those uh, with HIV and TB as well as COVID-19 co-infection were the greatest risk of uh, increased morbidity and mortality. And finally, one of the important um, contributions our hospital was able to make um, in the early days of uh, COVID-19 was the early use of uh, high nasal flow oxygen and we're able uh, to show that this uh, technology saved lives and importantly prevented um, individuals with severe disease from needing to be ventilated and admitted to ICU and subsequently we're able to develop um, a new predictive score of individuals uh, who would need um, uh, ventilation and management in ICU, which has been adopted and used uh, world over. So those were some of the uh, important uh, contributions that our group and colleagues uh, who worked with us were able to make um, uh, in this space. Mm. And there certainly are very important contributions particularly clinically, but perhaps for the layman amongst us, you can make this a little bit more practical. For healthcare workers listening or anybody interested, how does all of this inform our understanding and our treatment of these diseases going forward? So at UCT, we've been lucky in that um we could contribute uh, to numerous clinical trials and we're able to contribute to generating uh, new knowledge about uh, COVID-19. And so a number of important themes uh, have emerged uh, from uh, the therapeutic trials. The first is that vaccines are essential to reduce the likelihood of infections. But while infections still do okay in those who've been vaccinated, the greatest value of vaccines is in preventing severe disease and significantly reducing mortality and also reducing incidence of long COVID in those uh, who've been infected. For hospitalized patients, the recovery trial demonstrated um, in a compelling fashion that the use of steroids for those who need oxygen is associated with improved survival. In addition, the additional drugs demonstrated to improve survival for those admitted to the intensive care unit. These include agents like tocilizumab, remdesivir, and monoclonal antibodies. Similarly, for patients 
with COVID-19 who are ambulant, in other words, individuals who are not sick enough to be admitted to hospital. There is also evidence that drugs like Paxlovid, uh, Mulnipervir, have all been demonstrated to improve outcomes uh, in that setting. And so I think the robust science carried out by the global uh, community has been critical to enable at a rapid pace sound scholarship and evaluation of different proposed uh, agents. And so, for instance, a drug that a lot of people were excited about in the early days and that was used in many centers, hydroxychloroquine, we now know um, has no role in the management of uh, COVID-19. Similarly, ivermectin, uh, which has been um, used in many settings, uh, is not only very harmful, again, has absolutely no benefit in management uh, of COVID-19. And hopefully all of that will be absorbed into how we treat not only COVID-19 going forward, but cardiovascular diseases more broadly. Agreed. So I know as the Cape Heart Institute, you look beyond just our borders, but in terms of the interplay of COVID-19 and heart disease or heart issues, what have you seen that seems to be particular trends in African populations? So Elna's studies on COVID-19 phenotypes and epidemiology in Africa were difficult for a number of reasons, but primarily because many African countries did not collect reliable data during the pandemic on index cases to inform accurate understanding of COVID-19 incidence and prevalence or even mortality. South Africa, on the other hand, was very good at this, documenting all individuals who were tested and all those who were admitted to hospital, and being able to triangulate this data with population-level surveillance, with those who were followed up in maternity clinics and um, HIV clinics looking at seroprevalence in those populations. But also innovations like being able to use uh, sewerage water for accurate determination of where we were in the waves. But most critically, the South African Medical Research Council, in collaboration with the UCT Center for Actuarial Research, was able to provide accurate data on excess deaths. And we also had large databases around the country like DETCOV or the Western Key Provincial Data Center that were able uh, to provide data that could inform accurate uh, local information nationally. But to answer your question, early data suggested that there may have been regional differences on the continent, for instance, with South Africa and Egypt reporting large numbers of infections initially and therefore higher incidence of cardiovascular involvement from COVID-19. However, subsequently, once we started conducting well-designed serological surveys of antibody prevalence in different African countries, we found that the rates of prior infection at population level were no different in many societies. And so this uh, myth that uh, Africa was relatively protected uh, from COVID-19, not only was it um, uh, untrue, but I think it actually 
was harmful because it fueled some of the hesitancy in prioritizing uh, treatments and uh, access to vaccines for many African countries. Absolutely. Now moving to another population that is particularly important to this podcast, you have focused some of the research on how all of this affects healthcare workers specifically. Can you you tell me and my listeners a little bit more about that? Yeah, so we were quite lucky right at the beginning of um, the first wave. I was uh, approached by one of my collaborators um, in the UK uh, who was building a a COVID-19 biorepository and wondered um, if I would consider doing the same in South Africa using healthcare workers and the rationale for selecting healthcare workers was that um, they are individuals who are front-facing and so would have a far greater degree of exposure to COVID-19 and would be an ideal model of um, studying the dynamics of uh, COVID-19 over time as we could uh, serially sample these individuals uh, over time. And I'm grateful to the South African Medical Research Council uh, for funding a program of research over a five-year period which allowed us to enroll 400 healthcare workers at Krodeskia Hospital where I'm based. And in the first six months, we were able to sample uh, these individuals uh, two weekly with nasal swabs uh, and with bloods. And then uh, after six months, three monthly until the end of the first year. And since then, we've been uh, continuing to sample them uh, six monthly. And we are very fortunate to have very high retention rates and people taking uh, interest in uh, continuing to contribute to this work. And this has evolved uh, to be an important uh, biorepository, not only for our own group, but for many groups around the country, as well as collaborators all over the world who have uh, been asking to access the different samples and have been able to do important uh, comparative studies. And so some of the key observations uh, we're able to make was that um, even in individuals who are asymptomatic or post-symptomatic, as many of these healthcare workers were particularly in the first three waves, COVID-19 infections were common. We're able to study the immune correlates of COVID-19 infection and to be able to glean early insights into the evolution of both B and T cell phenotypes in this healthcare worker cohort. We're able to also use um, this cohort of healthcare workers uh, to be able to study the biology of breakthrough infections. In other words, uh, individuals uh, who either have had prior COVID-19 who develop subsequent infections or those who've been vaccinated who develop subsequent infections to try and understand what is it that's different about those individuals compared to those who don't get subsequent infections. We're able uh, to look at the immune responses uh, to different vaccines 
and so were the first ones um, to publish uh, on uh, the immune responses uh, to the Johnson & Johnson vaccine and subsequently to also confirm the observations of others in relation to the Pfizer vaccine. But importantly, we now have a number of really important studies looking at this cohort on the long-term immunological changes from COVID-19. Being a cardiologist, uh, I've obviously been interested um, in the study of um, cardiovascular biomarkers uh, and changes uh, to the cardiovascular system. And so we've been able to take both a molecular biology approach, but also to use advanced imaging with MRI to look at the phenotypes of cardiovascular disease in um, these healthcare workers uh, following uh, infection with COVID-19. And we've got another study where we're looking at brains uh, as well through study of um, fluid um, uh, from lumbar punctures as well as um, MRI imaging of the brains. And I, I really want, again, to state on this platform my um, significant gratitude um, to the South African Medical Research Council for having the foresight uh, to support the establishment of this bioresource, which has ended up being uh, incredibly helpful nationally and globally. Unfortunately, we need to already end off this conversation and you've touched on so many different things. But I want to ask you a question that I ask all of my guests. What is the one thing from our conversation that you hope healthcare workers will take away? COVID-19 is a serious illness, but fortunately vaccines do work. And we are now entering a phase of chronic endemicity uh, from COVID-19. And uh, it's going to continue to exist amongst us for many years. And my uh, parting message uh, to all healthcare workers uh, will be to encourage them uh, to continue to get regular boosters uh, to protect themselves, their patients and their families uh, from COVID-19. It's been an absolute pleasure to be on GE Vital Voices and to be able to speak about the intersection of cardiovascular disease and COVID-19. I hope you find it instructive and useful. Thank mm. you. It's so important to not let our guards down with this just because it's become such a part of our lives Definitely very important to still keep ourselves protected. Thank you so much, Prof. That was Prof. Ntobeko Ntusi from UCT and the Cape Heart Institute joining me today to talk about the link between COVID-19 and cardiovascular issues. My name is Elena Schutz and you've been listening to GE Vital Voices. Healthcare has never been more accessible, intelligent or dynamic. It's also never been under more pressure. That's where GE Healthcare comes in. You and we, the clinicians and professionals on the front lines of delivering healthcare for your patients and communities. Also, those building the intelligent devices, data analytics, applications and services to enable you to do so more efficiently and with better outcomes. Together, we're at the center of an ecosystem striving for precision health. We release new episodes every month or so, and you can find us wherever you get your podcasts. 
find out more on gehealthcare.africa and as GE Africa on social media like Facebook, LinkedIn and Twitter. Please join us again next time. Goodbye.